As we were singing that last song, I, I couldn't help but just kind of reflecting on all the runs that were taking place yesterday, the St. Jude runs and everything. So, Zach, maybe for the playlist next year, <laughs> this Yes, I'm Running might be, <laughs> might be appropriate for, for something like that. I, I wanted to, uh, to start this morning by showing you a picture of Megan and I. So, Jake, if you can put that up on the screen for us. Got my lovely bride there and then that other guy that's that's there with her. But I wondered if anyone might have a guess where that picture was taken. If anybody feels like it, it looks familiar or just even wants to just take a shot at it. Colorado, Colorado it would be a good guess that it was not Colorado. Not Colorado. AI? AI? You stole my thunder. <laughs> this picture is not real. Now, okay, th that picture was actually taken in a bowling alley of Megan and I, but, but through the, the marvel of AI nowadays, those mountains, they're not even real mountains. Those are mountains that were created. So Photoshop has this new beta version thing that there's this AI, uh, uh, you, you can generate a background. And so I typed in mountains and it gave me that. And I had to do very little to it. I, I softened an edge <laughs> to it, and that was it. So that picture, I mean, anyway you look at it, you can start to see those things. But, but for like five or ten minutes of work, that's, that's, that's believable, right? I mean, th this is, and, and, and this is me, an amateur, <laughs> who just downloaded this beta version of Photoshop and, and got that out of it. And so, man, the world that we're living in now, especially when we think of AI photos and videos as well, I think the question, how can we know what is true, is as relevant as it's ever been, right? There's no shortage of convincing fakes out there which can deceive us. And this is maybe just kind of a minor um, uh, example of that. So. And, and, and you know, while, while, the, while the need to discern the truth is as relevant as ever, it's not something new to our context. It's not like we are experiencing something that, uh, that, that nobody in history has ever dealt with before. As we continue uh, looking at overviews of, of some of the biblical books this summer, we've come to Second Peter. And Second Peter, the book, is a reminder of the fact that, that truth and deception were present in the time of the early church as well. It's not something unique to us. It's been present then too. It's, a, it's also a reminder that there are, there are real outcomes associated with believing truth or believing lies. There's real outcomes with that, and, and we'll see that as we get into it this morning. But, but I would encourage you to open uh, your Bibles to Second Peter with me. It's, it's page 1018 in uh, the Pew Bibles. And as, we, as with uh, 1 Peter that we studied last week, this letter begins with the statement that it was written by the Apostle Peter. And he, he begins his letter by focusing first upon truth. That's where he gives his attention first, is to truth. And I think there's something helpful just in the order in which Peter discusses truth and falsehood. Just as, with, just as Peter starts with truth, so should we, right? Knowing, knowing the truth is essential 
when it comes to being able to identify falsehood. Maybe said another way, you, you can't avoid falsehood without knowing truth. You can't avoid falsehood without dwelling in truth. And the truth that Peter highlights is the truth that the believers that he's writing to have been brought to salvation by the work of God in their lives. This is the truth that, that Peter is highlighting for them here. Paul famously says in Ephesians chapter 2 that, that it's by God's grace that we are saved through faith. That, those are, those are uh, Paul's words inspired by the Spirit. Peter says it this way in, uh, in verse 1, for example, chapter 1, verse 1. He says, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Down in verse 3, he says, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Uh, and then if you skip down to verse 10, it says, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Calling, and, he, he talks there repeatedly about, about God's calling to us, about God's work. The believers had experienced salvation in their lives. They are forgiven of sins. They are made righteous by the work of God within them. That's the truth that Peter is reminding them of here. Without God's saving grace, they, they would be utterly lost in their sins. So that's the truth that he identifies, but, but he doesn't just stop with identifying the truth. Right? It's not about just proclaiming the truth and that's it. That truth showing itself in the lives of believers will lead to something. It will lead to something. In, in verse 4, we see God's work within us will lead us to be it says, become partakers of the divine nature. Partakers of the divine nature. In other words, we will become more and more like God. We will more and more possess and display the character of God in our lives as this truth is working within us. Down in verse 8, Peter warns about a possibility of being ineffective and unfruitful in our lives. If we don't allow the work of God to transform us, if we don't participate in what God is doing within us, then it's possible and perhaps likely that we will be ineffective and unproductive, as Peter says there. And it's why Peter urges the believers to, to build certain things upon the foundation of faith that they've been given. So I want, I want to read verses 5 through 7. Chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. Peter says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. We ought to be doing things in our lives that will support and encourage the growth of those qualities within us. Now, it's not solely a work of ourselves. We can't think that. God's, it, it's God's sanctifying work within us. He's, he's doing work. But it's a work which we ought not oppose. We ought not hinder by how we live. We ought to make every effort to see these 
qualities increase within us. When, when, the, when the truth of God, when the knowledge of God takes root in our lives, it's going to produce these things that Peter writes here in these verses. And he goes on in verse 10 and he says that, that the, the fruit produced will confirm our salvation. It'll confirm our salvation. It doesn't secure our salvation. It's not that we're saved because of the fruit, but it confirms in us that, that yes, I've been saved by Jesus because of the fruit that is seen in my life. It's confirmation of that. It's, it's the natural outcome of the work that God is doing within us and that we are taking part in. And so as, as Peter's writing here, we, we ought to consistently long for and strive toward truth because of the sanctifying work that God does in us through truth and through our faith in that truth. So truth does something. It transforms us into God's image. But Peter also talks about how, how this truth is, is found in certain places. So we got to remember, this is Peter writing this. Peter, who, who was blessed to walk the earth next to Jesus, Peter, who, who had conversations with Jesus, saw Jesus transfigured on the mountain, he affirms that Jesus himself and the gospel message about him is true. And because, because God is truth, because Jesus is the exact image of God, then we know that Jesus is truth. It, it, it's that old... Uh, transitive property of mathematics, right? If A equals B, B equals C, then A must equal C. So if God is truth and Jesus is the exact image of God, Jesus is truth. And in addition to Jesus being truth, so are all the words of God true as well. Peter writes in the last, uh, the last section of chapter one that the the things which God spoke through the prophets that have been recorded in the Bible, that they're true. They are true. Peter, Peter affirms that the prophets weren't just speaking on their own account. They, they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So, so in a day and age where you can't even trust a photograph, or you can't even trust a video, the words contained here in the Bible continue to be true. They were true the moment that God gave them to the human authors. They are true today, and they're going to be true for all eternity. Our world can struggle as it grapples for truth. You can see that different places. But it's not because truth is more difficult to find nowadays. It's because our, our, many in our world have rejected the source of truth and the revelation of truth. And that's what can make truth more difficult to find. If you're not going to look for it in the right spot, it makes it very hard to find it. You know, I, um, as Megan referenced our, our time with our Basque student, uh, Neroa, this past month, uh, at one point we were having a conversation and um, uh, she was sharing her view of the Catholic Church in her region. And, and one of the things that she brought up was, was examples of ways in which she had seen or was aware of leaders in the church who were, who were greedy, who were prideful, or, or, or just you know, downright living out evil. And, and 
my response to her in that was that, that there are no perfect churches, but churches and, and individual Christians run into problems when, when they deviate from truth, right? When we deviate from what God has given to us. A, a church and a Christian ought to be functioning. If they're functioning as they ought to be, then, then they're holding fast to the truth that we've been given. And, and then they allow that truth to, to produce the fruit that, that Peter talks about here, the character of God being formed within us. So it's not that, it's not that Christianity is wrong because there are those who, who are not holding to the truth. It's that there are those that aren't holding to the truth, even within, um, even within the church at times. So that's what Peter talks about in, uh, in, in chapter one of this letter. He's highlighting the truth, what it does, where it can be found. But for as firm and productive as truth is, we are still fallen human beings and we are prone to wander. That's the reality of who we are. We're, we're, we're prone to take in falsehood. And so in chapter two, Peter warns about falsehood. He warns about false teaching. He first warns the believers that false teachers, false teaching will come. He, he, he affirms that it, it's going to happen. Perhaps the church thought that they were immune to that kind of thing, but, but Peter urges them to be cautious and alert. False teaching will come. Satan and his lies are real. He's bent on leading people away from God. He will deceive people, and then he will work through the deceived to deceive others. And Peter's warning them of that here. Now, we probably don't like to think about the fact that we are susceptible to false teaching. I don't, I don't like to think about that, but, but it's true. It's true. If in, in, and if we neglect God's truth, if we neglect it and, and ignore his spirit within us, then, then we're as prone as anyone to being led astray by falsehood. You know, I thinking about it like a, like a garden or a flower bed. You, know, you can work really, really hard to clear all of the, the weeds out of, out of that garden. And it might look really good for a while, but, but just leave it alone. Don't do anything to it. <laughs> and the weeds are going to be there. They're going to find their way in. False teaching will take root in us if, if we are neglectful. And if we are neglectful of the truth and, and dwelling in the truth and taking in the truth and allowing the truth to transform us. Uh, Peter goes on then in chapter two, after he gives the warning that, that false teaching will come, he, he, he does then assure the believers that, that false teachers will be judged by God. Even though they're going to come, the day of judgment will also come. And, and if you look in uh, verses four, five, six, on down, Peter draws on past history. He highlights how God's judgment is seen in the time of Noah, seen in the time of Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot. Um, God's judgment was seen as he dealt with the angels who revolted against him. And, and, and then Peter says this in verse nine, chapter two, verse nine. He says, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. I got somebody reading along with me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> he, 
it's just like a pastor just won't stop. Just keeps going, right? <clears throat> just keeps going. That's all right. Let me read verse nine again. That'll get us back. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. What this tells us is that, that, that while we must be on guard against false teaching and be grounded in the truth, we, we, don't, have to take, we don't have to take ultimate judgment into our own hands. It, it's not up to us to bring ultimate justice to the situation. We, we hold fast to the truth. We proclaim the truth. We keep false teaching from taking root in our midst, but we allow God to handle bringing final justice to the ones who are seeking to lead others astray. That time will come, right? We, we, can, we can trust that, that God will do that as he says he will. And then for the rest of chapter two, Peter goes on to really show us how we can spot false teaching, because it can be difficult to spot at times. A person can be so persuasive, so, so charismatic in personality that, that it can be tough to discern if, if what they are speaking is true or false. Even when we are focused on, on, on knowing and applying God's truth, we can still struggle with that. And so what Peter points out in the rest of chapter two is that false teaching and false teachers will show themselves by their fruit. They will. Uh, verse 10, for example, Peter mentions their lust of defiling passions and their despising of authority. Uh, he says they do not tremble before God in humility as they ought. Verse 14, he says they have eyes full of adultery they are insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. Their hearts are trained in greed. Uh, verse 18, they, they speak loud boasts of folly. They entice a person's sensual passions. Um, verse 19, they, they, they promise freedom while they themselves are slaves, right? Paul, Paul says, or Peter says, you, 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 you'll know. You'll, you'll see the fruit and you'll know false teaching. Again, if I can use... One more gardening illustration. Um, it's something I enjoy as I've done it over the years. I've learned more and more about different plants and uh, vegetables, flowers, things like that. But I, I'm nowhere close to having a working knowledge of all fruits and vegetables, all plants. And so, for example, I was, I was <clears throat> just thinking through what are two plants that if, I, if they were in front of me, I wouldn't, wouldn't be able to distinguish between them. And I thought, you know, Somebody put a young eggplant and a young okra in front of me. I wouldn't be able to discern the difference in those two. Now, I'm sure they look very different, but I just, I don't grow those things in my garden. I never have. Now with Google, I'm sure I could find out in five seconds, but, but for the sake of illustration, I, I, I would not know. I wouldn't be able to tell you the difference. I could guess, but that'd be it. But I do know one sure way to figure out the difference between those two plants. And that's to see what is produced, what they go on to produce as they mature. It will be very obvious, right? I know what an eggplant looks like. I know what okra looks like. So I would know then, right? What is produced will show what the plant is. The roots, the stems, the leaves, those things might confuse me, but, but the vegetable that each plant produces will, will make everything clear to me. And when it comes to false teaching and false teachers, I think what Peter's saying is we can look at the fruit that is produced. We can look at the outcomes of it. 
Peter already listed in chapter one the fruit produced by truth. Paul in Galatians chapter five famously talks about the fruit of the spirit. I mean, that's what they're talking about there. Now, when a teaching produces something contrary to those things, then we know, we can be certain that that it's falsehood. Now, this is not to say that, that if a person ever sins in their life, and if they ever fall into temptation of any kind, then they are automatically a false teacher. I mean, if, if that were the case, you'd have to brand me as a false teacher, you'd have to brand all of us as a false teacher, because we all fall into sin at points. We don't, we don't look to see if a person ever fails. What we are looking for is what kind of fruit is consistently produced. That's how we will know something is true or, or false, when the teaching is true or false. If a person has a track record of continual pride with no sign of change, then either they aren't teaching God's truth or they, they haven't allowed God's truth to take hold within them and transform them. And either way, they aren't teaching from an intimate knowledge of God. And the fruit reveals that, right? If a person is filled with greed and, and seeks to benefit from others by their teaching, what, what they're teaching is probably not truth. It's falsehood. If a teaching or, or a system leads people into anger or, or sexual immorality or division, then, then it's, it's false teaching. We, we look at the fruit and we can see see it for what it is. You know, in a world where it's not difficult to have a slick website or, or thousands of subscribers or, or publish a book or, or create a public persona, we really have to be cautious and discerning what we accept as truth. We have to be careful about that. Things are not always what they appear on the surface. And when our only interaction with a person or teaching is, is from a distance, it, it, it can, it's tough to get below the surface, right? And, and, and this is true of, of Bible teachers as well. There are people who, are, who would say they're teaching from the Bible, but they're not teaching truth from the Bible. Right? And again, and, and I'm, not, I'm not saying we shouldn't ever read books or, or listen to podcasts or online sermons. I'm not saying that, but, but there is a safeguard in place when you can examine the life of your pastor or elder or Sunday school teacher, small group leader. I mean, who, whoever it might be, there, there's a safeguard there. False teaching can't be hidden when the fruit is evident. It's a lot easier to hide fruit when, when you can create this public persona and make it look like whatever you really want it to look like. Now, things usually come out, right? And we hear stories all the time of, of public personas within the church who, who, who fall in in different ways. And in a, in a physically, in a more and more physically disconnected world, it's so important to be able to examine a person's life in, in, a, in comparison with the truth of the Bible. And again, we're not, we're not looking for perfection, right? We're not going to find that perfect person outside of Christ. But we're looking for that evident fruit which, which affirms whether teaching is true or false. And Peter helps us think through that here. It requires time, it requires energy on our part, 
it's hard work. It, it, it just is. It's easier to just pick up a book or, or, or listen to a podcast and just go with it and, and not even really give it any deeper thought. It takes hard work, but it's necessary work in order to discern between truth and falsehood. And as Peter goes on in this, uh, in this letter, it, it seems that perhaps one of the areas in which false teaching was showing itself, places it was prevalent in the lives of these early Christians, was in regard to Jesus' second coming. So he's talking about truth and falsehood in a little more general sense in the first two chapters, but then he gets specific in chapter 3. In verses 1 through 7, he, he speaks about the reality that, again, that false teaching is present. There, there were some who doubted that Jesus was coming again. Uh, I mean, listen to what they say. Peter quotes them in verse 4, chapter 3, verse 4. He says, They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Now, we don't, we don't know motives for sure, but it, but it seems that this teaching would come from a desire to proclaim that Jesus is not going to return, and so he's not going to judge sin. And if Jesus does not return and does not judge sin, then it really doesn't matter what I do. I, I can just do whatever I want to do. I can, I can uh, give in to the passion, my passions that lead me to do whatever it might be. But how does Peter respond to that. In, in, in verse 2, he urges the believers to remember the predictions of the prophets and the commandments of Jesus. He's going back to the source of truth, Jesus, and the words of God. He encourages the believers to go back to that. He compares what is being taught by those false teachers with the source of truth. And he says, you know, ju just, as, just as judgment took place in the days of Noah, just as judgment is foretold by Jesus and the prophets, we can be assured that Jesus will return to the earth and he will judge sin when he returns. And just because it had, it had been taking a while didn't mean that the words of Jesus, didn't mean that the words of the prophets were wrong. Okay, Peter, Peter stood on other truths from the Bible to dispel the false teaching that, that it had just been too long. Jesus just wasn't going to come back. Right? I mean, uh, Peter stated, well, well, with God, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. But where does Peter get that? Is he just, and I know he's, I know he's inspired by God, right? So God is speaking through him. But God is also speaking through his previous words. If I read to you Psalm chapter 90, verse 4, this is what it says. And these are the words, this is a psalm of Moses. It says, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. So Peter, what he's doing is he's noting the truth about God that was, that was written previously. He's noting this truth that God is outside of time. And so when we think something's taking too long, Peter's saying, well, really, it's a matter of perspective. It's a matter of perspective. At the time of Peter writing this letter, it had probably been 30 years, give or take, since Jesus had ascended back to heaven, promised that he would return. Now, by one perspective, 30 years is a long time. Right, kids? 30 years is a long time. By another perspective, 30 years is not that long, right? 
I saw, I saw something online this week. The movie Back to the Future, right? The movie that came out in 1985. Marty McFly went back 30 years to 1955. It said, if that movie came out today, 2023, Marty McFly is going back to 1993. Doesn't that make you feel a little old? <laughs> 30 years isn't that long all of a sudden. All right, so, so when, when faced with, with false teaching, Peter did what all Christians ought to do, and he, he examined the words of God. Right? He heard what was being said. Oh, Jesus is taking so long, he's not coming. And Peter says, no, no. With God, a day is like a thousand years. He promised he was coming. P Peter took his stand upon the truths revealed to us by God. And then he went on, he closed his letter by, by stating how those truths about Jesus' return ought to impact how Christians live. Remember, Truth in us will, will bear fruit. What Peter says, he says that those who believe in Jesus return and, and that he will judge sin is going to produce this kind of fruit. So verse, verse 11, he says that, that they will live lives of holiness and godliness. That'll be the fruit produced from that truth being within them. Verse 13 says that they will be waiting for and looking forward to the new heaven and the new earth. Verse 14, they will be found to be without spot or blemish due to God's salvation. They will be, they will be at peace. Uh, verse 15, he says that they will, they will see the patience of Jesus regarding his return as an opportunity for others to come to salvation in him. Um, verse 18, he says that they will grow in the grace and knowledge of God. Again, what we believe will produce fruit. Peter's saying when you believe the truth that Jesus is coming again, here, here's the fruit that, that's going to be produced in your life. As I said earlier, we, we live in a day and age when there's, there's all kind of falsehood swirling around us. We have more information than ever, but we're less certain in the reliability of it, don't you think? Isn't that true? We are truly blessed to be loved by and to serve a God who not only is truth, but who has revealed truth to us, who has given us truth for this age, and it's been for all ages that have come before us and, and will be after us as well. He's given us his word. He has worked in our lives in such a way that we have received his words of truth and how blessed we are to be his son and his daughter. And so in God's power, we ought to utilize the truth that we have been blessed to receive. It ought to be applied to our daily lives. Uh, truth from God is, is the foundation that we need in such a tumultuous time. You know, it, it, it's no wonder that the farther society as a whole distances itself from God's truth, the more prevalent falsehood becomes. I mean, we shouldn't be surprised by that. It, it's, it's the natural outcome. And so, you know, as we talked last week in our overview of First Peter, standing upon the truth of God may prove to be a lonelier and lonelier task as time goes on. We may find less and less people in society willing to take that stand with us, but, 
But even if we should suffer for standing upon truth and exposing falsehood, we're blessed by God. Just because we suffer for that doesn't mean that we're not blessed. We are blessed by God as we stand upon the truth he's given to us. And so we ought to allow it to shape us in such a way that, that uh, the fruit that we produce is evident of the truth being within us. I mean, that's my prayer. My prayer is that, that as the truth takes root and as God works, that it shows itself. And then those, those in our lives who are looking for truth will see the fruit that is produced and be drawn toward it. Because the fruit that, that truth produces is good and it's desirable and it's, and it's God-honoring. And as God is stirring in people's hearts, they can see what's produced in us and then yearn for it, ask questions about it, wonder where it comes from. That's my prayer for us, that we would stand firm on it and that it would be transforming us each and every day of our lives. What I want to do is uh, have you stand with me. And I just, I want to read the final two verses of uh, this letter that Peter writes to the believers. So I'm going to read chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. I think it's a good, good challenge and a good conclusion. It's probably why Peter closed his letter in this way. He says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let me, let me pray for us. God, I thank you that in this world that, that we can know you, that we can know truth that comes from you. God, I thank you that you walked this earth and that we can see truth lived out, that we can see it take on flesh and blood. And God, I thank you for your words to us in the Bible as well. We know that there's been falsehood all throughout history, but it just seems like in our day and age, there's, there's more and more deception and I thank you that in, in, in the midst of that context, we, we do have truth from you and that we can stand firmly upon it, that we can know that it is from you. And God, I thank you that it's truth that is effective and that you shape us and transform us as you work in us and that you produce fruit through us. And we're, we're so honored and grateful that you would do that. Would you help us to to walk with you as you are working in that way. Would you give us a confidence in the words that you've proclaimed to us? Would you give us confidence in your character? God, a confidence that stands firm even when there's winds that blow against us. God, I give you the praise this morning. I thank you for who you are and I thank you for how you've chosen to reveal yourself to us. I thank you that we are blessed to have received that revelation. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.